Listen, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please join me in John chapter 15. We've been going through the Gospel of John for quite some time now, and this morning, by God's grace, we're going to finish out chapter 15. So we're going to look at verses 12 all the way to the end, so 12 through 27. I'm going to read this for us, uh, and then I'll pray and ask God to bless our time. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. If you don't have a Bible but you'd like one, there's a few on this table back here by the entrance. Make sure you grab one on your way out. Uh, That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that everybody has a copy of God's Word. So uh, if you don't have one, grab one this morning. So I'm going to read this for us, and then I'm going to pray. Ask the Lord to bless the preaching and the teaching of his Word this morning. So John chapter 15, starting at verse 12, and it reads, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I, had come, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But that the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled, they hated me without a cause." But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, thank you that you've graciously gifted us with this day and with this opportunity to fellowship together. God, we thank you that you've given us your word. God, I have an incredible task before me to rightly divide the Word of God, which is no insignificant task. It is weighty. It is meaningful. Lord, and I am just a a fallible man, a man of clay feet. So, Father, I am pleading with you that your Spirit would be at work this morning in and through me. Lord, I am asking that you would intervene during this time and do what only you can do. Help me to preach your word with power, with precision, yet with humility and grace as well. And Father, I ask that you would open the hearts of those in here to receive the truth of your word, to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory, 
and to respond accordingly. Would we be people who honor our king? And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, the gospel isn't just a, a life-changing message. It's a life-giving message. You see, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't just transform your life. It alters your eternity. It's a beautiful message. You see, at the core of this gospel message is the love of God. You see, the love of God that's shown to his people through his son, Christ Jesus. See, the cross of Christ shows us the depth of our love's creator, just how far God was willing to go to rescue his people. See, the gospel is a gospel of love. And the passage that lies before us this morning reminds us of the incredible love of Jesus Christ. In fact, we get a picture of the greatest kind of love that challenges us to love each other in this way. So we get a beautiful reminder of this, but then this passage is going to pivot for us. It's going to change in a dramatic and a drastic fashion. See, Jesus challenges his disciples to abide in him and to love one another. See, the theme of love certainly is prevalent here, but Jesus also tells them that hatred is to be expected. Friends, this is something we all must recognize. Yes, we are eternally loved by Christ Jesus. But don't misunderstand, following Jesus means you will face hatred from the world. You see, in spite of that reality this morning, I hope to encourage everybody in here, or at least those of us in here who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. See, I want us to feel the weight of Christ's words here this morning. I want us to understand his warning of the hatred and persecution that we can expect as his followers. But I also want to encourage you to endure that, compelled by the love of Christ. See, that's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that it's the love of God that compels us. That's what helps us to go into the world and face the hatred and persecution that we know we're inevitably going to receive because we're motivated by Christ's love. You see, I hope we leave here this morning inspired by that reality, knowing that the Lord has not left us on our own, but he's also, not only does he love us greatly, but he's shown that love because he's given us this wonderful community of believers, this fellowship of brothers and sisters. And he's also gifted us with the Holy Spirit to empower us to face adversity, to engage that hatred with the love of Christ. So as we look at this section, I think it's helpful to really break it into two particular sections. This passage has two halves, essentially. So if you're taking notes, I'm just, there's going to be two headings, and that's all we'll do. It's section one and section two. So section one, we'll begin here, and that's, we'll title it, The Greatest Love. And that's verses 12 through 17. So section one, The Greatest Love. So here Jesus is really continuing his uh, upper room discourse. This is the same conversation that's been transpiring for the last couple of chapters here. 
What you must understand, these are Jesus' final moments. These are the last moments before he's tried and arrested and crucified. You see, that adds weight to the words of Christ Jesus, the magnitude of this moment. If we look at verse 12, Jesus says something here. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I believe it was Pastor Gabe uh, preached on uh, this text from John chapter 13. So if you recall back in John 13, verse 34, Jesus says something very similar. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, it's important to note here, don't miss this, don't skip over this. Jesus says that this is his commandment. You see, this is significant, right? We all know what a commandment is, right? Everybody, okay? A commandment is not a request. It's not a suggestion, right? This is a requirement. This is something that's obligated, something that we are expected to do. And Jesus says that his followers are to love one another. Friends, church, listen, this means we are to love each other. You do not have the option to opt out of this commandment. Everybody on board with that, right? See, this isn't something you can twist or manipulate to avoid. This text is crystal clear. Jesus says, love one another. It's so simple, a child could understand it. See, this applies to the entire household of faith. We must love our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Listen, that love is to be unconditional. If they're a believer in Christ, just like you, you are supposed to love them. Now I know what you're thinking. Man, you just don't know my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law is actually here. I'm not talking about him. Just using an example. He's a wonderful man. <clears throat> but, right, that's the first thing that comes to your head. Like, man, my, my, that coworker of mine, yeah, he's a Christian, but, man, if you just spent five minutes with him, you'd understand, man, if you could just... I don't see that in the text. I don't see the if you just, I don't see any loopholes to this commandment. See, I get it though. It's difficult, right? It's hard as sinful human beings to love other sinful human beings. It's not easy. You see, that's why we must be relying on the Spirit. If you go back in John 15 where Jesus talks about doing that pruning, the work of the Holy Spirit, and pruning brothers and sisters, like I think that's what this looks like, is being able to empower us to love people even when it's difficult to love one another. That's fruit of the Spirit, love, right? If you can love even the people that seem to be the most unlovable, listen, this is a principle we must put into practice because it's been commanded by our King. Listen, we have a great opportunity because the holidays are right here upon us, and some of us are going to be sitting down at the Thanksgiving table and for Christmas dinner, right? And we're going to have some difficult conversations. Man, you won't believe who he voted for. You won't believe his political affiliation. That dude's a Cowboys fan. I just can't. I mean, I don't, again, I don't see any stipulations here that allow you 
to be free of this command of Jesus Christ. He says we must love one another. See, again, he's just told them of the Father's work and pruning his people, and I believe that that's what this looked like. See, you got to remember, even in their immediate context, the disciples probably didn't all like each other. Right? They probably didn't all get along very well. Peter was a, man, that dude was aggressive. Right? I'm sure they had some beef sometimes. In fact, the text tells us that they were arguing often about who was the greatest among them. Right? They didn't always get along well. But Jesus says in these final moments, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. But then I don't want to stop there because then Jesus says to love one another. And then listen to this. He says, as I have loved you. See, that's the qualifier for our love. We are to love each other as Christ has loved us. So that means that our love should look like Christ's love. Well, what does that mean? What does Christ's love look like? And I think really one word comes to mind here, and it's the word sacrifice. Right? We are to love each other sacrificially. That's what Jesus' love looks like. Ephesians 5, 2 says this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Or Galatians 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. You see, we're reminded throughout the scriptures that Christ's love is a sacrificial love. In fact, Jesus' love is the greatest love. Here in verse 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You see what Jesus is doing here. He's telling them of what is to come. It's a bit of foreshadowing of the sacrifice that he's about to make on their behalf. See, Jesus knew exactly what he, was, what he had come to do, that he was marching to the cross, to Calvary, to lay down his own life. See, what an incredible act of love and sacrifice that really is. See, what Jesus does there at the cross is astonishing. It's really beyond our comprehension. See, that Jesus would love us so fully and so completely, even in our sins and trespasses, that he would lay his life down for mine. It's almost more than I can stand. It's an incredible love. See, it's indeed the greatest love. And the way that we love each other should resemble our Savior. That means it should be the kind of love, listen to this, that lays aside selfish desires. It should be the kind of love that's motivated for the good, for the needs of others. It should be the kind of love that abandons this idea of self-preservation. Brothers and sisters, do you love other Christians this way? Are you willing to surrender yourself? Are you willing to lay aside your own preferences and exercise a level of humility that places the needs of others before your own? Because that's the kind of love Jesus shows us. And again, I get it. It's hard. 
that goes against our very nature. We're human beings who just naturally love ourselves, don't we? We don't need anybody else to coach us up on that. We love us. Man, our love should look like Christ. He says, love one another as I've loved you. That's sacrifice. See, Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, this is the type of love we're called to as Christ followers. See, the greatest love, it lays down even its very life for the good of others. Man, there are many ways we can apply this across all of our relationships. I love that Pastor Gabe took the time to pray for marriages. because I think this is where we see this play out the most. Right, as husbands, do we lay ourselves down for our wives this way? We even think about those who aren't married, who haven't enjoyed the gift of marriage yet. Do we give ourselves for the betterment of those around us? Are we just worried about what it is we want? Is our love a sacrificial love? I want you to see something incredible here. You see, Jesus tells us what the greatest love looks like, but then he follows the statement with the glorious implications of this type of love. Let's look at verse 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. This is incredible. This is, this is, it blew me away this week as I'm reading this. You see, the greatest love turns enemies to friends. In fact, we can even take this a step further. It turns children of wrath into children of God. You see, th through the cross of Christ, we have become sons and daughters of the King. Church, that's the beautiful reality of this gospel message, that we're born as sinful human beings who are in opposition to God. We've rebelled against him. We're really God's enemies under his righteous wrath. But the greatest love, the love of Christ who gives himself for us is what reconciles us to this living God. It turns enemies to friends. No longer are we under the condemnation of this just and righteous God, but we're now objects of his affection, brought into his family. And that's good news this morning for those who believe. Amen. See, Jesus tells them, he says, look, you're not servants. Although it's important to note, we all, we are called to serve, right? Jesus says that if you want to be great, the, ones who's, the one who is your servant is the greatest among you. We are called to serve, to imitate our master. But here Jesus says, you're my friends. That's a great term that he uses here. And if you do some study on it, as I was in my time of study and preparation this week, the terminology that's used here is reminiscent of a custom that was practiced at the courts of Roman emperors and kings. I want you to get this. See, there was a select group of people called the friends of the king or the friends of the emperor, right? And those individuals had access to the king or the emperor at all times. They were in the closest, most intimate connection to the king or the emperor, whoever it was at that time. They had unlimited access to that ruler. 
Brothers and sisters, when the Lord Jesus calls us friends, that means we too have this intimate, deep relationship with him. We have unlimited access to the king and to the throne of grace. That means you too have this unlimited access to the king. See, Ephesians 3 verses 11 and 12 says this. It says that as Paul is writing about the mystery of the gospel, he says this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, this is what it means to be a friend of God, that we can come before the throne, that we can cast our burdens on him. We can plead with him in prayer. We get to enjoy this deep and meaningful fellowship with God. That's a personal relationship. See, that's what I love about Christianity, the uniqueness and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Man, it's a personal relationship. It's not this abstract system or a set of ideas. It's a relationship. We have access to God because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's personal. You see, and so personal is King Jesus that he's even revealed to these men the plans, the will of God the Father. You see, Jesus has come veiled in flesh, and he's shown them God. If you recall in John 14, 9, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or Emmanuel, if you remember, means God with us. See, Jesus has come, and he's shown us God. He's shown them God. And his friends, he's revealed to them the mysteries of of the kingdom. If you recall in Matthew chapter 13, the disciples asked Jesus and they say, why do you speak to the crowds and parables the way that you do? And then Jesus reminds them of the exclusive access that they have. He says to you, it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. See, this is what it means to be a friend. This is what it means to be in Christ. For these men, for their, the 12 disciples, Jesus had given them the mysteries of the kingdom. He had revealed to them the will of the Father because of this deep relationship that he has with them. And so Jesus says to those that he's called friends, listen, you know what I'm doing. I've made known to you all that my Father has said. Now, an important note here. If you go back to verse 14, Jesus says, you are my friends, because I don't want to skip over this. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, that's a verse that can cause a lot of people to stumble. Like, I'm only Jesus' friend if I perfectly obey all of his commands, and I never sin, and I never make any mistakes. Is that what's being communicated here? Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command command you. Now, I want to be clear here. I won't spend an enormous amount of time on this because Pastor Tyler preached a couple weeks ago about the importance of obedience and following Jesus and how those things are linked. They're not exclusive from one another, but exclusive to one another. Obedience should be our posture. But Jesus isn't saying that your obedience is what makes you his friend. That's not what he's saying. In other words, your obedience isn't going to earn you the title or distinction as a friend of God. I want you to listen closely to me. Your obedience will not merit your salvation. Everybody understand that? Okay. However, 
If you're one who has an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, you've come to know Christ as Lord, then you demonstrate that through faithful obedience to him. Okay, does that make sense? Is everybody tracking with that? You're not saved by your obedience. Your obedience is simply evidence that you've been saved, that you're in Christ. And it's imperfect. I want to say that too. I don't want anybody to walk out of here and think, man, I haven't obeyed perfectly. I must not really be in Christ. That's not what the text is saying. There is no one perfect other than Christ Jesus. We thank God for his perfect obedience because that's what saves us. Amen? See, the friends of Jesus, however, though they view his commands a particular way, they don't see Jesus' commands as burdensome. They see them as life-giving. Right? When we're in Christ, we want to obey his commandments because we see them as leading us to life. You see, Jesus says to his disciples and to any of us who would choose to follow him, you're my friends. See, one of the beautiful realities of being a friend of Christ in this saving relationship with him is that it's his choice. Look, the text highlights that. Let's look at verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Because Jesus says something similar back in John chapter 6. If you recall uh, the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus is in the bread of life discourse, and he's having conversation with the crowds that are following him. And we come to the close of chapter 6. A lot of the folks who were initially following Jesus have turned and gone away. And then Jesus turns to the disciples, and he says, do you want to go away as well? And then Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus responds to Peter's statement, and he says, did I not choose you? See, this is important to remember, too. This is a humbling reality. See, the disciples didn't just wake up one day and decide they were going to go pursue Jesus. See, he went after them. See, of all the men in the city of Jerusalem that he could have chosen, he picks these 12 guys. He goes after them. He's intentional in seeking these men out. Now, yes, they were willing. They said yes, and they followed Jesus, but he calls them first. He sought an intimate relationship with these men. That's a reminder of God's sovereign choice. Listen, if there's anybody in here this morning that's carrying some attitude of superiority. As if you think that your position in Christ or your salvation is something you've chosen or you've earned, man, this should humble us. Jesus says right here, I chose you. And this highlights the loving grace and kindness of our Lord and his sovereign choice. Again, I hope that humbles us this morning because God doesn't have to do that. That's the reality. He doesn't have to save anybody. As sinful human beings, there's no great quality that we possess that would make God say, yes, I need to save them. He chooses to do that because he's a loving and merciful God. So he reminds them of his sovereign choice, but he doesn't just remind them that they've been chosen. But here he also tells them 
why he chose them, why he's appointed this, these men. See, he has a purpose for calling them. Verse 16, again, he says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So Jesus' purpose in choosing these men is so that they would produce fruit. See, this is a reality that applies not just to these 12 disciples, but to all believers should be bearing fruit. And again, we've talked about this a little bit the last couple of weeks, so we won't spend a whole lot of time here. But just as a reminder to every Christian in the room, God saved you for a reason. See, just like these men, he saved us that we would go into the world and be his witnesses, proclaiming the truth of the gospel message to a lost and dying world. Brothers and sisters, listen, lean in real close. I want you to hear this. Christianity is not a spectator sport, right? We don't just sit on the sidelines. We don't just sit on our hands and enjoy our salvation. God has saved us for a reason. He saved us for a purpose. We shouldn't just sit here as the world perishes. God's given us new life, and he's given us this message. He's even empowered us again with the Holy Spirit to be able to go into a dark world that is going to hate and oppose us to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to call those to repent and believe. This is why Christ chose these men, and this is why he saved you and me. So my question is, is are you living that purpose? You know, John Piper has a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And that's the whole premise of the book. What are you doing with your life? That's a great question we could ask everyone on the planet, but specifically to the Christian, to my brothers and sisters in this room. What are you doing with your life? God has saved you. Are you now going into the world Wherever, whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be in Hungary or Sweden or Africa. Wherever God has you now, in proclaiming the glory and the splendor of Christ Jesus to those who so desperately need it. That's why God saved us. That's why he's gathered a people together for himself. See, Jesus then here, as we continue on, he goes on to reiterate a statement from earlier in chapter 15. If you look back at verse 7, there Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, he says something similar here in verse 16. He says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, again, Pastor Tyler addressed this a couple of weeks ago. And but this is, again, just a reminder that this isn't just a blanket statement. It doesn't mean you can just pray for whatever your little heart desires and that God is going to give it to you as long as you say in Jesus' name. That's not how it works. This isn't a credit card with no limit, and you can just keep racking up purchases, and God will give and produce everything you want. That's not what this means. I believe that what Jesus is doing here is he's essentially making a connection between the necessity of prayer and producing fruit in the life of the believer. See, we need to have our desires and the things that we pray for rightly ordered 
by Christ and by the power of the Spirit. We need to be praying for things that are in line with his will. And he says, when you do that, God answers those prayers. He's more than happy if we're praying for our own sanctification. If I'm praying for the work of the Spirit in my life to help me love that family member that I'm just dreading sitting down with next month at Thanksgiving. Now, they're a believer, but man, we're a million miles apart on a lot of things, and I'm just not looking forward to it. God, I need you to help me love that person. Those are the things we should be praying for. God, help me to be courageous to go into the world knowing I'm going to face adversity and persecution. Help me to stand firm in the truth of your word. Those are the things we should be praying for. And Jesus says when we do, God answers those prayers. Again, I think Jesus is pointing them to something. I want you to think about their immediate context, the disciples. And they're getting ready to go into the world in, in the first century after the resurrection and ascension, they're going to face a lot of hostility, and we'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus is telling them they need to be praying for the appropriate things, as do we. See, finally, Jesus closes this portion, this section, by once again reminding them of the purpose of all of his commands. Verse 17, he says, these things I command you so that you will love one Another And see here, Jesus just gives us a simple summation of what he's calling us to do, to love one another. But then as we move to verse 18, we see why this command is so significant. See, it all ties together so beautifully here. Once we get to verse 18, we see the need for this. So now we move from section one, the greatest love. Now we're moving on to section two, the hatred of the world. And we see this in verses 18 through 27. You see, Jesus has spent a lot of time in this upper room discourse, and he's, thus far he's pointing to this idea of love. And not just love for them, but the love they must have for one another. You see, he's challenged them to abide in him, and he's promised to send the Holy Spirit to comfort them. And so Jesus over and over again says, uh, abide in me, abide in me, to love one another, to love one another. And then when we get to verse 18, we see this drastic transition, and we see why all of these commands are so important. We see why Jesus says, abide in me, over and over. We see why Jesus says to love one another, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, this reality, this truth is barreling down on us, and it lands like a ton of bricks here at verse 18. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. See, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And Jesus' tone has changed radically. But what he's doing here, he's really, he's juxtaposing two ideas, two themes that are opposite of one another. See, he shifts the conversation from love now to hatred. See, this is why it's so important that they abide in him and that they love one another, because the world is going to despise them on account of Jesus. See, Jesus reminds them the world first hated him. And we see this truth play out in Jesus' life. He's rejected by the nation of Israel. 
See, he was the Messiah, the one that they had long waited for. But Jesus comes and they reject him. In fact, they crucify and kill the Savior of the world, nailing him to the cross. Friends, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus says that hatred towards his followers is to be expected. Just as they hated our king, they're going to hate us as well. And then Jesus tells us something here. He tells us why the world will hate us. And he says, it's because you are not of the world. Listen, that's a significant point. I don't want anybody to miss that because that's a challenge to us. Remember, Christian, you are not of this world. See, we inhabit this world. We reside here, but our citizenship is elsewhere. We're not to adopt the mentality of the world. But we're to have our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit and to be conformed to the image of Christ. Friends, in other words, we're just to live differently. God saved us to be holy and set apart. We're not to be like the world. We're not to have the same priorities or the same beliefs. We're not to pursue the same things. As Christians, we're called to be light in the darkness. We're called to be people who stand firm on the word of truth, who push back against the wicked agendas and ideologies of this world. And when we do that, if we're truly living differently as God calls us to, man, you can expect hatred because the world is under the sway of the evil one. See, Jesus says in verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Again, this is, we got to think about the disciples in their immediate context. They would know exactly what Jesus is saying, and they would face this almost immediately. The minute he dies and resurrects and then ascends again, they would face tribulation and persecution. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus warns them of the tribulation they will face. In Matthew 10, verses 17 and 18, he says, They will deliver you over to courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings. In verse 22, he says, You will be hated uh, by all for my name's sake. If you go to Matthew 24, 9, Jesus says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Friends, this is what Christians can expect from the world. And these men face that firsthand. Jesus stands there, and he talks to these 12 men. He talks to his disciples. And he says, this is what's coming. This is what's coming. And we see that if you read the book of Acts. You see that they face difficulty and persecution. If you recall, every single one of them was martyred with the exception of John. They were all killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, I think sometimes we forget that we too must face suffering and persecution in this world. And we think that Jesus died and died for us and he resurrected just so that we never have to suffer or go through anything difficult or hard. That's just not the case. Listen, we are naive as followers of Jesus Christ if we think we won't ever encounter any kind of hostility from the world. And you can expect them to treat you the same way they treated Jesus. And why, though? Why? Because the gospel is offensive. 
When you tell people that they're dead in their sins and that they have no ability to save themselves, I don't care how nice they are to everybody. I don't care if you pay all your taxes and you treat your family well and you go to work on time and you open doors for older ladies and you do all of the things that the world says is great. If you're not in Jesus Christ, you're dead in your sins. Nobody wants to hear that. See, the gospel is offensive. You tell people that Jesus Christ is the only way to life. I don't care what other religious systems you subscribe to. I don't care how many times you go and pray and what other divine writings, quote unquote, you memorize. Even if you memorize the Bible, which is God's inspired word, you can memorize it start to finish. You can come here and meet with your, these people every single Sunday. If you're not in Christ, you have no hope. When you tell people that, that's offensive. That's going to draw the ire of the world. You see, I think for a lot of us, this idea is so difficult for us to reconcile. See, we, we want to be liked, which isn't necessarily a terrible thing. I mean, nobody wants to be hated, right? If I were to take a survey of everyone in this room and say, do you want to be liked or do you want to be hated? I think I know the results. Say 100 out of 100. Everyone wants to be liked. But you see, as Christians, being liked and being accepted isn't the goal. You see, the Lord calls us to be faithful, to be people committed to the truth. Now, on the other hand, I, I want to make a point here as well. We don't need to work hard or try to be uh, offensive or hated. We don't need to do anything extra. We don't need to add anything to the gospel. We don't need to wake up every day and say, huh, how can I make the world hate me? That's not the goal either. Again, the gospel of Jesus Christ is already offensive. The world is already hostile to that. But we need to be people who are committed to that truth, regardless of what may come. See, brothers and sisters, being persecuted for Christ is actually a good thing. See, Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. You know, I think about the disciples again in the book of Acts and it says they're arrested and they're flogged and beaten. And then it says they left there rejoicing because they were counted as worthy to suffer on behalf of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you think about persecution this way? Do I think about persecution this way? Now, that's a challenge to myself. Now, again, this, it's, it's a different context from the first century to now in the 21st century. Persecution for Christians in America, I'll say. Now, around the world, there are still brothers and sisters losing their lives for their faith, and we praise God for their faithfulness. But here in America, right, persecution is going to look a little bit different for us. We're very comfortable here. We have a lot of religious freedoms. The worst that may happen is you might get unfriended on Facebook, right? Or again, you may be shunned at the family dinner because of your allegiance to Christ. 
But do you think about persecution this way? First of all, do you expect it? Do you expect it to come? And then number two, when it comes, do you rejoice? Because you're counted as worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. To suffer for your king. Is this the way we think about it? See, do you see this incredible contrast here? Do you see what Jesus is doing? See, he reminds them of his great love for them and their need to love one another. But then he says, the world is going to hate you. That's why you must love each other and be reminded of my love for you. He says, the world's going to hate you and persecute you because of my name. And then in verse 21, Jesus gives us really the crux of the issue here. Verse 21, he says, all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. See, this is the fundamental reason for rejection of Christ Jesus, because people don't know God. See, that's the problem, not just in Jesus's day, but certainly we can see that in our day. We can see all of these godless agendas being pushed. We can see that a, a world that has no desire to know God. They don't, it's not that they just don't know God. It's they don't want to know God. We see that on display. See, we see a world that openly rejects and even mocks God. And see, Jesus says, that's why they will reject me. That's why they will reject my followers and my message, because they do not know God. You see, men are not only foolish when they don't know God, more importantly, they're doomed when they don't know him. That's why it's important for us to carry this message, even in the face of adversity. You see, Jesus has come and he's revealed God to the world. Yet there are people who will still refuse to accept and acknowledge Christ as Savior. Let's look at verses 22 through 24. Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them... They would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now, I want to make sure we understand this correctly. See, Jesus isn't saying that they would have been sinless had he not come. He's just saying that his coming has only further indicted these individuals. See, Jesus comes to the Jews and the word made flesh has come and revealed the glory of God to mankind. He's done all of these miracles. They've heard his authoritative teaching and all of the claims he makes about his divine identity. And yet they willfully choose to reject Christ. They choose darkness over light. And that only compounds their guilt. Jesus is saying because of their decisive rejection of him, in the face of all that he said and done, they are guilty. See, they've had the Savior before them. They've seen, they know. And they willingly choose to ignore him. And for that, Jesus says they are guilty. So it is with all those who hear the gospel message and choose to reject it. You see, the Lord will render his verdict at that great day of final judgment, and all who have denied Christ Jesus will pay the due penalty for their sins and transgressions. And I don't say that to scare anybody in this room. I can only say what God has said. 
says that Jesus is the only way to be justified before the Father. See, Jesus has come to these people and he's told them that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come to the Father except through him. But you see, that's again, that's, that's the problem for so many people, that Jesus is a stumbling block to them. They hate Christ and they hate this idea of a savior and uh, the need for salvation and the need to be forgiven for their sins. Again, that's why the world hated, hated Jesus. They hate his messengers. They hate his message. That's why we can expect persecution. Because people don't love the truth. They love the darkness. They refuse to acknowledge their need for the savior and they won't bow to Jesus as Lord. To people, so many people want to determine their own way to God. But Jesus says he's the only way. See, any teaching or religious system that is void of faith in Jesus Christ does not save. See, Jesus says, if you've hated me, you've hated the Father. See, you can't try to get to God the Father and ignore the Son. It does not work. See, but again, what we have is a world that is very hostile to Jesus. And it's because they don't know God. But Jesus reminds them that this is all to fulfill the scriptures. Verse 25 says, but the, world, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without, call, without cause. See here, Jesus quotes two Psalms, Psalm 35, 9 and Psalm 69, 4. And his point is really simple here. Just as they hated David, a man who was flawed, said, how much more will they hate this perfect Savior that comes and calls them to repent and believe? Jesus said, of course they would hate him so that the word would be fulfilled. See, God has ordained even the hatred of the world and the rejection of Jesus as part of his divine plan. See, this is what ultimately gets Jesus to the cross. Accomplishing the Lord's plan of salvation. See, Jesus tells his disciples here they're going to be hated and that persecution will come. But as we close chapter 15, he reminds them once again of the role of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says that when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See here, Jesus offers some encouragement. He once again tells them that this helper is going to come. He's going to come sent by the Father and he's going to empower his people in their witness. Jesus says this spirit of truth is going to bear witness about him. And that's the Holy Spirit's job. The uh, spirit always bears witness to the Son. And see, that's why we need the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, because on our own, in our own strength, in our own power, we're not able to be faithful witnesses to Christ. But Jesus reminds them that the Spirit is going to come, and not just any Spirit, but the Spirit of truth. See, the Spirit is going to help us to speak truth to a world that so desperately needs it. You see, through the Spirit's leading, we're able to call to mind the words of Christ, proclaiming the truth of the gospel as his witnesses. See, that's what God calls us to do. And he reminded his disciples here again of the importance of being faithful witnesses. And as we finish our time together, I want to remind everybody in here 
least all the believers in here, Christ's words and what he says to us. He says that greater love has no one than this, that someone laid out his life for his friends. See, brothers and sisters, Christ has given the greatest sacrifice. He's given himself. He's given his very own life to reconcile you to creator God. See, that's a glorious truth. I hope that's not something that's just mundane or pedestrian to the believers in the room. I hope that's something you never get over. That Christ Jesus, the creator, the maker of all things, has given his life for your freedom. That's the greatest act of love throughout all of history. He's given his life for yours. But see, church, the reality is there are people lost in the world that don't know that love. They don't know the great love that turns enemies into friends. They don't know the hope and the joy that we have in Christ Jesus that's beyond this life. And see, that's why he saved us again to go into the world with this message. To share the truth with those who so desperately need it. So listen, two things as we finish. If you're a Christian in here, that's your purpose. That's why he saved you. Remember to abide in him, to love one another, and then to expect persecution, but to faithfully go into the world and share the truth of the gospel message. That's number one. Number two, listen, if there's anybody in here under the sound of my voice that isn't in Christ Jesus, that doesn't know the doesn't know him as Lord and Savior, doesn't know the joy, the peace, the freedom that comes from Christ Jesus. Listen, 2 Corinthians 6.2 says today is the day of your salvation. That can be your reality right now. You simply repent and believe. If God is stirring your heart even now and the Holy Spirit is at work, maybe you're able to see this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ as you've never seen before, then the only appropriate way to respond is to acknowledge him and worship him as Lord and Savior. And when you do, man, you get to be a benefit of that greatest love, the love that gives itself for you. That can be your reality this morning. Brothers and sisters, let us never be naive about the world. Let us never turn from the mission to share the light of Christ Jesus with the world. That's what he saved us for. That's why he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, we are just grateful, uh, Lord, for your great love for us, that you've laid down your life, that you've given yourself so that we could be free. Lord, would we be people who love one another? Lord, would our love resemble yours? Would it be unconditional? Would it be sacrificial? as we love our brothers and sisters, Jesus, as you have loved us. And Father, would we just remember that the world is going to be a hostile place that is uh, against the gospel, that is against you and your people. But Lord, would we not run from that? Would we not avoid those conversations and those interactions? But instead, would we engage with the gospel message, with the hope that is only found in you, Christ Jesus? Lord, would you empower us to live as your witnesses, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And would you use our faithful proclamation to bring the dead to life, that the lost would repent, believe in Jesus, and be saved. And would you get the glory in all things? And we ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.